more than 100,000 Russian troops have been deployed to Ukraine's border, and the threat of open war looms large in Eastern Europe. This is, has become tremendously politicized. And someone such as Mr. Putin understands that it is a common history. And that's why he claims we are one people. We should be one state because we have a common origin. Kiev and Rus is just as it sounds. It's Kiev and it's Rus. It's things Ukrainian, things Russian. It's common. So in, for Mr. Putin, this is why uh, independent statehood let alone something like joining NATO or let alone um, EU membership or forming a political system like a democratic kind of a political system is anathema. Did you know that the word Ukraine literally means on the border? So the very name of the country means borderland. And that up to recent decades, in the English language, we use the term the Ukraine which reflected how Ukraine was previously perceived as a region. But that perception and how we refer to Ukraine now have changed since that country's independence. Hey there, News Peelers. Today is February 4, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the Peel.News is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Ukraine was one of the 15 republics that comprised the Soviet Union, the collapse of which has been described by Vladimir Putin as a geopolitical catastrophe. But Mr. Putin has expressed much deeper sentiments towards Ukraine. According to the Wall Street Journal, in a 2021 paper that was shared with Russia's military, he wrote that Russians and Ukrainians are one people, a single whole. As if anticipating this podcast, the New York Times asks a direct question. What do you know about the two nations at the center of this conflict, Ukraine and Russia? That's a really good question. What do we Americans really know about Ukraine's and Russia's shared histories? What is the basis for Mr. Putin's claim that Russians and Ukrainians are one people? To answer these questions and to better understand Ukraine, and by understand I don't mean its political history, I mean Ukraine's people and their sense of identity, their prejudices and predilections towards Russia. 
We spoke with Ms. Catherine Warner. She's a professor of history, anthropology, and religious studies at Penn State University and has studied Ukraine for decades. Her most recent book is titled Everyday Religiosity and the Politics of Belonging in Ukraine. And her previous books include State Secularism and Lived Religion in Soviet Russia and Ukraine, as well as Communities of the Converted, Ukrainians, and Global Evangelism. To learn more about Professor Warner and her work, visit her academic homepage, the link for which, as well as links to several of her books, are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Warner and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Warner, it is a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Ukraine is dominating our news here in America, and rightfully so. Russia's troops are building up. This buildup is a menace that cannot be ignored. Instead of talking about this developing news, however, I want us to talk about Ukraine itself. So I'll ask a basic question, and I'll bet the answer to it is going to be complex. So here it goes. Who are Ukrainians? Well, Ukrainians, first, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very, very pleased to be here. I've, my pleasure. Uh, I've devoted my entire professional career to uh, answering that very question. Who are these Ukrainians, and, and, and what kinds of problems do they have, and how can they be solved? Um, Ukrainians are an East Slavic people. Um, for the majority of their history, they uh, were part of the uh, Russian Empire, which of course then became the Soviet Union. And since 1991, when the Soviet system collapsed and gave us 15 new countries, one of those new countries was Ukraine. Um, it's important to note that the very name of the country, Ukraine, Ukraine, it literally means on the border. So the very name of the country means borderland. Oh, wow. Interesting. And it very much connects um, Europe and Eurasia. But it also, sort of in a north-south kind of way, uh, it's on the Black Sea, which then gives direct access to the Mediterranean and, and further too. So Ukraine was very much of a, a borderland and in-between kind of a, a zone that connected many, many different peoples and places uh, via trade, via different kinds of state, uh, I should say imperial, and then into state structures over time. So it's a, it's a very pivotal place, but because it up until very recently didn't have a name, uh, we didn't really pay much attention to it. But there's always been- What do you mean it didn't have a name up until recently? It, it, historically speaking, it was not called Ukraine? Well, it was seen as a borderland region initially as a um, the, the because of this, this sort of centrality of its location um, back in, uh, you know, the, the 
the ninth century, I mean, there was a thriving civilization there in what is today Kiev, um, and that became a major uh, center of trade and commerce and learning, and it was a seat of power. It was called Kiev in Rus. Um, they that were, was the name of the city back then or a region? Uh, uh, that was the name of the, the political entity that existed at that time, uh, Kiev in Rus. Rus almost sounds Russian. Is there a reason? It, that's exactly right. You see then the common origins. When Putin says today that Russia and Ukraine are one people, and when he claims to um, feel empowered to dictate the, the politics and, more importantly, the geopolitics of this space now known as Ukraine, among the reasons why he feels uh, empowered to do so is that the original seat of East Slavic civilization was originally called Kievan Rus. And you're right, the Kievan part pertains to things which have become Ukrainian and Rus, things that have become Russian. Uh, Professor Warner, uh, we started, you shared uh, the definition of the term uh, Ukraine. Uh, for my own edification and that of our listeners, I wanted to clarify a couple of points. Why is it that sometimes, especially in the past, let's say a decade ago, 15 years ago, we would from time to time hear people, lay people, and even sometimes experts say the Ukraine instead of saying Ukraine. Like you don't say the Sweden or the Estonia, you just say Sweden and Estonia. So why was that? That's a direct outgrowth of seeing Ukraine as a borderland region. In English, for example, and, and I'll give a, an example in Russian and Ukrainian in just a moment, the status of a geographical area is reflected in language. You're right, we say in Russia, in the US, but when it comes to a region in the South, in the Caucasus. I see. In the, Ural, in the Urals, these are regions. And so that's why we, in English, under this conception that Ukraine was a region, we would say in the Ukraine. So that, that that's somewhat offensive probably to Ukrainian at this point. This is why the English language has been technically and officially altered. So now when we refer to Ukraine, we say in Ukraine. Yeah. In recognition of the fact that it's no longer seen as a, a region, but rather it's a country. Uh, so we say in Ukraine, um, as we say in Russia. In Russia. Um, speaking of altering things, I've noted that in the last decade or so, we that the name of Ukraine's capital, I've always been used to, Kiev, K-I-E-V. The spelling has changed, and sometimes I pick up a different pronunciation. Could you um, sort of illuminate that change? Certainly. That's also a direct outgrowth of the fact that um, for literally centuries, uh, Kiev and Ukraine were part of the Russian Empire, where the official language was Russian. It was even at certain points... Um, of time outlawed to speak in Ukrainian or to publish anything in Ukrainian. So of course, place names, the official place name of let's say cities, let's just stick with the, the capital of Ukraine was Kiev, the Russian version, K-I-E-V. That would be, you know, obviously in Russian and in Ukrainian, they use the Cyrillic alphabet. So the transliteration of the name of the city was Kiev, K-I-E-V. But that's a transliteration from Russian. And that made sense when Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire 
And then uh, part of the Soviet Union, which also recognized Russian as the primary national language. But since 1991, when we've had the breakup of the Soviet Union and the creation of an independent Ukrainian state, which now has uh, technically, uh, this is a this is among the contributing factors to the problems and the tensions in Ukraine. How many national languages could they or should they have? There are proposals to have only one, but the rendition of Kiev as Kyiv, Kyiv, that's from Ukrainian. So officially, once again, the the official name of the capital of Ukraine is is Kyiv, K-Y-I-V. And that's because that's coming from Ukrainian. It makes sense. I mean, it's their country. They get to have the spelling and the pronunciation their way, right? Right. It would be, I'm from New York. It'd be like calling it Nuevo York. I mean, the (laughs) Spanish speakers in New York are insisting that, uh, uh, you know, it should be named otherwise in English. So that's on the Ukrainian side. Then there is a strong effort to buttress the recognition of Ukrainian as a national language. There is, a, you know, of course, there's a, a Ukrainians have always spoken Ukrainian uh, in different political entities, whether it's the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. There were sometimes discouraging mechanisms, sometimes coercive mechanisms that either encouraged or forced people to speak Russian. And that's why there's a significant portion of the population today speaks Russian. But it's also important to underline that at this point in time, 30 years into Ukrainian independence, at a bare bones minimum, I've never met anyone in Ukraine that wasn't entirely bilingual at this point. In other words, Ukrainian language has always been a means of of conversing in Ukraine. And Russian was also very much in use. And so the result of this has been... um, a significant, a really a stunning degree of 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 bilingualism. Is is Ukraine's language now shifting towards more Ukrainian than Russian, which would make sense, right? Yes, I, I see. There are many um, unfortunate, entirely understandable, but unfortunate developments that have come about because of these political tensions. In other words. Language takes becomes freighted with political implications. Which language do you speak? Yeah. Um, whereas it used to be, and uh, I'm an anthropologist by training, so I inevitably uh, go to different places in Ukraine where sometimes one language predominates over the other. And, and as an anthropologist, I would always sort of test the waters by speaking the opposing language just to see how people would react. How do they react if, if you're in a Ukrainian dominant section and you speak Russian? Well, uh, what I've, uh, I'll do before 2014 and then after 2014. Oh, that's a good point. That's when uh, Russia sort of annexed um, Crimea. Okay. So before 2014, people would routinely switch and respond to me in Russian because they, most people could. Sometimes small children couldn't uh, because education now is, is entirely in Ukrainian. But most people would just switch to Russian and respond. Um, increasingly, people now respond in Ukrainian. And even, even if they if, could speak Russian, right? Correct. Correct. Interesting. So there's um, language, unfortunately, has taken on 
um, these politicized meanings. And even, but I would also quickly hesitate to to I quickly uh, add that before 2014, even um, in Eastern Ukraine, where Russian language predominates as the language of of commerce and uh, all things official. I mean, it has this is where the bilingualism comes from. Official things, that is to say, the news on the television or radio, uh, or education, for example, any kind of government documentation, all of that was in Ukrainian. But very often people would speak among themselves in Russian. So you had this tremendous bilingualism uh, very actively going. So increasingly, you now as we get sort of 25 years into independence, if you go to Eastern Ukraine and if you would speak to someone in Ukrainian, they would then switch themselves and respond to you in Ukrainian because they obviously could speak Ukrainian. And it's very it was very, very easy to switch. But now increasingly throughout the country, um, there's less and less reticence there to speak Russian. Um, because language is important. I mean, try speaking, uh, busting out English in a cafe in France. <laughs> you know, it's um, from what you're telling me, um, and we'll um, we'll get into this more. I think in a, in a subsequent uh, segment. You cr- and I'm being very cautious in the use of my words, and you have to clarify me and pardon me if I misuse a word. Ukraine has a limited history, at least in the modern era, of statehood, of independent state. Am I correct on this? Yes. Well, um, we started to speak about Kiev and Rus. I mean, this was an mm-hmm. enormous uh, and powerful state, which was... Was that a Ukrainian state or a Russian state, or is that up for debate? Is that something that Mr. Putin is claiming for himself? Well, this is... This is um, Exactly how one understands this is has become tremendously politicized. And someone such as Mr. Putin understands that it is a common history. And that's why he claims we are one people. We should be one state because we have a common origin. Kiev and Rus is just as it sounds. It's Kiev and it's Rus. It's things Ukrainian, things Russian. It's common. So in for Mr. Putin, this is why... Uh, independent statehood, let alone something like joining NATO or let alone um, EU membership or forming a political system like a democratic kind of a political system is anathema because this is one, a common cultural, linguistic, religious, and of course, political space. One of your books is titled burden of dreams, history and identity in post-Soviet Ukraine. What is this book about? And in our limited time, I mean, specifically, what I want to know is following is the following, and I think we talked about it. Has Ukraine's sense of nationhood or statehood evolved since in its independence from USSR? So there has been there have been uh, periods of time when there has been an attempt for uh, to create an independent Ukrainian state. Uh, if we just look at just the 20th century, for example, the Russian Revolution of 1917 was um, you know provided a rupture from the the Russian Empire and a tremendous remake politically and otherwise of that geographic area. And there was an attempt to create an independent Ukrainian state. This state was overrun and it Ukraine was then incorporated into the Soviet Union 
as a republic, once again, as a region, if you will, of the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union clearly had its seat of power in Moscow, which is squarely part of Russia. Uh, during World War II, again, once again, these tumultuous uh, events provide uh, breakdowns of established institutions and norms and the like. But for those who seek independent statehood or tremendous political change, this is an opportunity. So World War II was yet another opportunity uh, to try for an independent state. Uh, it failed again. Um, and that's why- in Did the Ukrainians initially welcome uh, the Germans? And I'm not talking about the Nazism or anything like that, just, just the independence, the freedom that it may have represented. That's exactly right. And that's one of the reasons why World War II, again, I mean, we, we talked about Kiev and Rus, but World War II is, again, another one of those moments that is very, very tense because there were uh, some people in Ukraine that, in fact, did welcome Nazi forces because they saw Nazi forces as a way to rid themselves of the Soviet Red Army. Mm -hmm. They thought that that might be a partner that would help them achieve Ukrainian independence. Um, and whether that was a, um, a an advisable collaboration or cooperation or, or whether those were informed or ill-informed decisions, this, of course, is a tremendous source of debate these days. But the point being that there have been these attempts over time to create an, a, an independent Ukrainian state. They have been foiled and foiled time again. Come 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, I mean, even Russia voted to cede from the Soviet Union. So, of course, Ukrainians, too, voted to cede from the Soviet Union. But it had the unexpected dividend that um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there were these sub-state structures, 15 republics. And so when the Soviet Union itself collapsed, overnight, 15 countries were born. And it was clear where the borders were because they were they used the Republican borders. The borders of the Republic became yeah. state borders. So after many attempts at a trying to achieve Ukrainian statehood, suddenly they had an independent state. And it was after centuries of having lived under the same political, most Ukrainians, not all, this is yet another factor, most Ukrainians living under the same political structure as Russians. And so this means since 1991, there have been all kinds of attempts to not only simultaneously create a democratic form of government, but a viable state with you know, sovereign state borders, but also a sense of a Ukrainian nation. What does it mean to be Ukrainian? Um, and so you have to say on its own, a distinct entity and distinct identity. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. So that was uh, a very, very difficult transition that had to be made as quickly as possible and entirely simultaneously. I mean, when a the Soviet Union as a command administrative economic system in a highly centralized political entity collapsed, it left in its wake um, regional, if you will, kind of political structures. But it, it, they had to do everything from, uh, you know, what is their national 
emblem and where do you put this? <laughs> Start from flag? scratch, yeah. Start from scratch. Okay, they had to create an army and you have to make uniforms. And how do you know Ukrainian soldiers from Russian soldiers? Or, uh, you know, and, and you have to remake a school system and you have to remake then these national narratives. Think about, you know, in this country, we, we all learn about, you know, Paul Revere galloping through, you know, the British are coming. British are coming, yeah. yeah. And the, there are these moments that everybody learns about. And so then something like Kiev and Rus, you know, you began by saying, is that Ukrainian or is that Russian? Yeah. So this became a very, very acute question suddenly in the former Soviet Union. And so for Ukrainians, they said, well, it was an early forerunner to the Ukrainian state. And these mandates for education, for emblem, for example, you gave that 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 uh, example, were no longer coming from Moscow. They had they were being made in Ukraine proper. Uh, interesting. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about the significance of religion in Ukraine? Did you know that Russia's claim to Ukraine is based in part on a treaty that dates back to 1654. And did you know that similar to his statements about Ukraine, Mr. Putin claims that Kazakhs, that is, Kazakhs of Kazakhstan, had never had statehood. To listen to these podcast conversations, just click the link for post-Soviet states podcast series in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Warner. Professor Warner, you've written extensively about Ukraine's religion. Uh, does religion play a big role in modern Ukraine? It does. And this is uh, perhaps surprising, perhaps paradoxical to some, because, of course, um, they were for 74 years under uh, the communism, <laughs> right, where overt religious practice um, was not allowed. And the formation of religious communities was highly regulated. And the, the Russian Orthodox Church, however, as the dominant religious institution within the Soviet Union, was allowed a measure of, um, of freedom, of an ability to function. And even during World War II, actually, uh, recognizing that religion was a source of fortitude, uh, Stalin made the decision that all religious uh, communities can begin to function once again to help and rally troops, <laughs> patriotism and support and the like, and only to have Khrushchev then, who succeeded Stalin, uh, launch into very very vicious anti-religious campaigns to try to put that genie back in the bottle. But um, I think it came as um, uh, a welcome uh, development for many, uh, in the 1990s when suddenly, uh, that was no longer the case. I mean, in other words, states were no longer, uh, invested in, uh, certainly not in suppressing religion. And so what happened then was, uh, in that part of the world, they called it a religious renaissance. Um, some people called it a religious resurgence because it depends on which religious groups then are ascending, which religious groups are becoming more uh, visible, more powerful. Mm. Uh, and it's important to note that most of these uh, religious groups have uh, some kind of transnational connections. Um, Ukraine, 
uh, because at that point in the 1990s was a fairly, or still is to this day, but especially then, was a fairly weak state with um, unable and unwilling also to begin to regulate religion. And so as a result, um, it became very much of a gateway. In other words, tremendous numbers of religious groups came to Ukraine and invested all kinds of uh, money in infrastructure and in the building of religious communities, uh, publishing houses, educational institutions, and the like. And um, the results of that are quite visible. And uh, interestingly, Ukraine was fairly open, uh, and there has been, um, although there have been myriad problems uh, on many, many different levels since independence, one barometer by which Ukrainians consistently rate very highly is in terms of religious freedom. In other words, there's fairly uh, little in, in terms of complaints against any kind of infringements on um, the rights of religious minorities. And this then has allowed uh, a wide away, array of religious groups to flourish. The country nonetheless remains overwhelmingly Christian and even within that uh, rubric, overwhelmingly orthodox. Orthodoxy is a form of Eastern Christianity um, that has its base in what they still to this day refer to as Constantinople, that's Istanbul, where the ecumenical patriarch has his base. Um, and this then becomes, this is the by far and away the dominant faith group in Ukraine, followed by what are called uh, Ukrainian Greek Catholics. Uh, it's a strange name, or so to English speakers, it sounds quite strange. But what it is, it's a form of Catholicism that actually has a Byzantine rite. In other words, um, taking taking stock of the historical legacy of of this Eastern Christian rite, which has its own kind of aesthetics and other kinds of parish practices, like, for example, having married priests. So within this Catholic church, um, they have married priests. So this, the Ukrainian Greek Catholics, they are liturgically and doctrinally and the whole aesthetics is very, very similar to Orthodoxy with the very significant caveat that they recognize the authority of the Pope. So they are integrated into the Roman Catholic church but as an, an, an Eastern Christian or Byzantine uh, Catholic church. I need an org chart to follow all of that, <laughs> Professor Warner. I want to talk about one of your books, actually, uh, that uh, follows a point that you made about Ukraine being open to the incoming of other religions. Your book is titled Communities of the Converted, Ukrainians and Global Evangelism. Evangelism, do you mean sort of the evangelical movement that we have in the U.S.? Is yes. it in that sense? That's exactly the sense in which I mean it. Um, keep in mind what we just said about the Greek Catholics. They have connections then to Rome. The In the 1990s, enormous numbers of American missionaries came to Ukraine. Um, and they did all kinds of missionizing and evangelizing. And Ukraine then became a center of evangelical training, publishing, education, and the like. And so there's wow. a very prominent uh, presence of American evangelicals in Ukraine. These two things matter because come 19 to 2014, when you start having tensions, let alone today, 
um, you have tremendous influence coming from the U.S. via Baptist, Pentecostal, charismatic groups into Ukraine. Tremendous influence of Catholic theology coming via the Greek Catholic Church into Ukraine. So to the extent that differences are evolving in Ukraine, differences in thinking, why would one area want to become more democratic? Why would one area want to become closer to Europe? Why would one group um, want to uh, massively expand the presence of religion? Um, one thing which I'm studying now, of course, are, is the chaplaincy. But of course, in the United States, it's very developed to have military chaplains, medical chaplains, and, yeah. and so on. Well, this is, of course, is not at all developed within the former Soviet Union, but via the influence of both the Catholic Church and, and American evangelicals, where they are then among the driving influences in terms of helping religion, just to use this one example, via the chaplaincy, take hold in Ukraine. I'm going to go on a limb and guess here. So if evangelicals from our country are going to Ukraine, so they're going to influence their thinking, uh, their religious rites and rituals, but they're probably also having an impact on their political and geopolitical thinking, right? Exactly Come towards right. the West? Is, is, is that exactly it? Exactly right. Just to give a small example, but it really ends up being quite a big example. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of Protestant groups are very involved in social service provision, charity work, humanitarian aid, and the like. Which is badly needed in Ukraine. Which is badly needed and, and very much welcome, uh, even by the Ukrainian state. But of course, orthodoxy, because of its traditional close relationship with the state, has, has very limited, in comparison, a limited tradition of that kind of social outreach. So you have tremendous push coming from these evangelical groups, which then puts pressure on the local religious organizations to do something similar. And, that, and because Ukraine is such a center, that then becomes a, a, a dynamic, if you will, that begins changing the religious landscape in Ukraine in a way that becomes different than it is in, in Russia. Growing up in San Francisco, I've, I've seen many Russian Orthodox churches, been in them. I've also seen them in Alaska. Do such churches still exist in Ukraine? They're Russian Orthodox churches, or have they renamed them, rebranded them Ukrainian uh, uh, Orthodox churches or something to that effect? Well, this is um, this is where you really need an organizational chart, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> it gets more complex. Okay, <laughs> I'll try to simplify things. Um, the there is a tremendous um, uh, really uh, participation in, in religious participation has always been higher in the southern part of the Russian Empire and in the southern part of the Soviet Union. So there has there are tremendous numbers of churches. In fact, to this day, fully one-third of all of the Russian Orthodox churches are in Ukraine. Oh, wow. How does that play out? <laughs> Three of the most powerful monasteries, the biggest, most important monasteries of the Russian Orthodox Church are in Ukraine. Tremendous numbers of priests 
are from Ukraine. I could go on and on, but th there's greater numbers of parishioners. The contribution of, of individuals to the church is, is very significant in Ukraine. So this who, is very who, who do they take direction from? Moscow. The, the yeah. Moscow. Right. Well, there's so, a there's a conflict there with other religions like evangelism that you were talking about. That's right. And, and more importantly, the parallel to the attempt to create a Ukrainian state, there was an attempt to create an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Because Orthodox churches, if you think about it, we have the Greek Orthodox Church, the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, Romanian Orthodox Churches. These churches were created after those states were created. When the Such as the Russian Orthodox Church, Russian yeah. Orthodox. You know, they don't they don't call yeah. it just the Orthodox Church; they call it the Russian Orthodox. Okay, that makes sense. So in Ukraine, once they have an independent state, they said we should have a Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Did that play out? In 2018, in of course the 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 will to do this radically escalated after 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the uh, Russian-backed separatism that erupted into armed combat in eastern Ukraine, the will to create an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church radically accelerated among the population, among political leaders in Ukraine, and most importantly, among the ecumenical patriarchate in Constantinople. In short, as of 2018, there is now an independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church. That is, it, puts, is it popular? Yes. Oh, in Ukraine, of course. Yes, very, very much so. And, and growing in popularity. And once again, I, I might add, uh, uh, it's important to note that before this, the escalation of violence in eastern Ukraine and now the threat of violence across Ukraine, it's important to note that for most Ukrainians, they uh, they, they were very uh, comfortable in in any church. They saw these so-called Russian Orthodox churches. They were in, in Ukraine, as a matter of fact, they were called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Moscow Patriarchate. So, in other words, oh, I see they're both yeah. they're ha they're having it both ways. But for most Ukrainians, that was just fine. Uh, and and just as we discussed how. Language has been freighted with these political differences. Are you with us or are you against us? Unfortunately, that has spilled over into religion as well. Professor Warner, your recent book, I think, sort of encapsulates some of the conversations that we've been having. It's titled, it is titled Everyday Religiosity and the Politics of Belonging in Ukraine. You use the word belonging. And it kind of makes sense now. Right. One way in which you, the Ukrainians have tried to sort of integrate these, now it's about 44 million. It's very hard to estimate the exact population these days because literally the, the, the territory upon which you can measure it begins cha is changing. But the 40 some odd million Ukrainians, one way to integrate them was this embrace of ecumenicism and an Eastern Christian tradition. And that, um, I, in, this, in that book, I began looking at how religiosity, purposefully drawing from this Eastern Christian tradition, has become a means of beginning to answer the question that we started with. Who are these Ukrainians? 
Um, what do they believe in? What, what do they do? How do they celebrate Christmas? How do they celebrate Easter? How do they honor their dead? How do they, uh, which holidays do they commemorate? And, and so I on. know Christmas on January 6th. Did I get that one right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Professor Warner, are Ukrainians now, and there's just so much pol- politics and geopolitical tensions involved. So, um, it's, it's it's sort of a tricky time to be assessing the Ukrainian culture as a whole, but here we are. So are they now more religious than the rest of Europe, which is becoming more and more secular? Um, you know, you, you use the word religious renaissance. I think in many respects they are, but what's interesting is... Um, the, you have to take into consideration the specificity of the of of Eastern Christianity or of Orthodoxy. There's very much of a sense that um, it's closely aligned with national identity. And so, in other words, the idea was if you were an if you were an East Slav, you were of course Orthodox. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, that's why most ethnic Russians see themselves as Orthodox. That's why. Ethnic Ukrainians see themselves as Orthodox, except for those ethnic Ukrainians who see themselves as the Greek Catholics. Yeah. But that Ukrainians, uh, so in other words, embedded in your very sense of self is this idea that you have a religious identity. You are Orthodox. But that's not the case, let's say, in uh, the UK or, 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 or especially in France, which is becoming more and more secular or countries like Sweden. Right. Uh, One could say that once upon a time it was. If you were ethnic French, let's say if you were French, you were Catholic. Yes. That that has withered. That has not withered. That, in fact, is re-arising. Strengthening. Strengthening. We'll be back after a short break to talk about Russia's ties to Ukraine in more ways than one. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Warner, um, in an earlier segment, I asked you, who are Ukrainians and you shared their history with us and you corrected us, corrected me on names. Um, I'm left with this question. Is Ukraine similar to, let's say uh, from afar, we see Japanese as sort of one, one race, one people, if you will. Um, I asked that question because president Putin claims that Eastern Ukraine is mostly the Russians and from, my you know previous readings i remember passages about crimea being mostly muslim and turkic there were cossacks so i could go on and on but you you understand the gist of my question the the complexity here that i'm trying to clarify a little bit 
Ukraine is a very, very complex place. Um, as a former region, if you will, a borderland region, it was divided between multiple empires, primarily the Russian Empire, but also the Austro-Hungarian and also the Ottoman Empire. Nonetheless, for a great many Ukrainians, they have shared a common political space with Russians. And Ukrainian as a language is linguistically related to Russian. These are both East Slavic languages. They're both, as I mentioned, um, Eastern Christian peoples. They're Orthodox, or even Greek Catholicism is an Eastern Christian faith. So on one level, there are, they've had somewhat different historical experiences, and this has created regional diversity within Ukraine. I mean, one looks at our own country, right? We've got regional diversity too. You know, the experience in the American Southwest is different than New England, let's say. Yep, yep. And, um, but nonetheless, it's important to note, though, that Ukraine has been uh, part, let's say, for the majority, the overwhelming majority of the 20th century, part of the Soviet Union, a hugely centralized state. And so I mentioned this sort of common, this bilingualism that was, uh, that evolved in Ukraine, uh, but it's turning into uh, a, a privileging of Ukrainian as a, a political uh, statement of where the country would like to go. Um, unfortunately, a great many of these cultural attributes have taken on political meanings. Um, and this is largely in response to the uh, political situation in Russia. When someone like Mr. Putin says, this is, we are one people, this is one space, Ukraine cannot have a measure of sovereignty without Russia, had the political system in Russia been perhaps a bit more amenable to most Ukrainians, some, I think, would perhaps have accepted that position. But the problem is for growing numbers of Ukrainians, they see the rise of oligarchs, in other words, the fantastically wealthy and a growing number, a growing percentage of the Russian population that um, is impoverished. They see uh, a restriction on a variety of civil liberties, and this is not a political system that they wish to be part of. Are you talking about uh, ethnic Russians that live within the borders of Ukraine? Is that, is that who you're referring to or just Ukrainians in general? Well, um, in, in, in the, during the Soviet period, people were obliged to state their ethnicity on all government documents. The fifth point, that's what they called it, the fifth point. Everyone had to state what their ethnicity was. And so on one level, people are very clear whether they're Russian or whether they're Ukrainian. Having said that, um, in the past 30 years, of course, that was totally done away with in Ukraine, and they're all recognized as Ukrainian citizens. So for Russia and for Mr. Putin, those who at one point might have been documented as Russians for him, remain to this day Russians. I see. 
<laughs> and that means yeah. he claims them as his own citizens. And he justifies then this aggression towards Ukraine because he says Russians, and let's say Russian speakers, and the Russian Orthodox Church is being threatened in Ukraine. And this is why, because they are one people, he has a right to militarily intervene to protect those Russians in Ukraine. For Ukraine, they say these are Ukrainian citizens, and they have been for 30 years. And so the Ukrainian state will then protect Ukrainian citizens. Are there, um, are there ethnic or racial divides in Ukraine that uh, that sort of play any part in the politics? For example, I, I mentioned uh, some, for example, Muslims, I don't even know if they're still there. I'm speaking historically that lived in U Crimea, was a part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Cossacks, uh, you and I during a break talked about Russian Cossacks versus, <laughs> versus Ukrainian Cossacks. Um, from what you're describing here, although those differences exist, they've sort of are irrelevant in the context of everything that's happening right now, right? I wouldn't say they're irrelevant. They've just taken on unexpected meanings. I see. Let's take, let's take the issue of uh, the Muslim population. There is, uh, in Crimea, there's an indigenous Muslim population. They are a Turkic-speaking Muslim people, Crimean Tatars. During World War II, the Soviet state, afraid that those Muslim Turkic speaking peoples might forge some kind of an allegiance with the, the state of Turkey or with us, other Muslim peoples, deported them all to Central Asia. Many, many, many died on this journey, and many then were dropped off in Central Asia and had quite an impoverished um, existence. Once the Soviet Union fell, Ukraine allowed those Crimean Tatars to return to Ukraine. After all that time? After all that time. And so this means that there has been a strong allegiance between Crimean Tatars, between this indigenous Muslim population and the Ukrainian state, and an antagonistic relationship between the Crimean Tatars and the Russian state. Because after all, it was a Russian-based Soviet state that deported yeah. in the first place. So there's a very strong allegiance with the Crimean Tatars and the Ukrainian state. So for example, the, by and large, the leadership of the Crimean Muslims, Crimean Tatar Muslims, they were against the annexation of Crimea by, by Russia. And many became refugees and fled to Ukraine. Interesting. Well, that's one important point. The other important point, and speaking of the religious renaissance, not just Turkey, but a variety of other Muslim countries um, expanded their own, if you will, missionizing to the former Soviet Union and, and, and most importantly to the Caucasus or Central Asia, where you have uh, very, very, very significant Muslim populations, and to Russia itself. The second major religious group in Russia is, of course, Muslims. Uh, so Ukraine became, uh, there were enormous investments. So there are 
You can buy halal meat easily. There's a halal meat. Oh wow, yes. we have the halal guys here out in the western U.S. <laughs> okay, in Ukraine too. Even though arguably officially the proportion of the population of the Muslim population in Ukraine is under one percent, but yet you have enormous numbers of let's say people from Azerbaijan who have come to Ukraine to work. You have enormous numbers of Afghan refugees that were settled in Ukraine. The U.S. government settled hundreds yeah. of thousands of Afghan refugees. Hundreds of thousands? And so all this by way of saying, um, for the official statistics of the number of Muslims in Ukraine, that does not, in my opinion, reflect the presence of a kind of an... Uh, Islamic infrastructure that has taken root in Ukraine. I don't mean to suggest that it's all over the place, but yeah, yeah. there, there is, um, there's a Muslim university. There's, um, there are tremendous. One can see historic mosques that exist in Western Ukraine when yeah. those territories were part of the Ottoman Empire. But there's even uh, increasingly in certain neighborhoods of Kiev the the active building of 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 mosques, and this is very interesting. This is very uncontroversial in Ukraine. Um, it's maybe, maybe it's part of the religious uh, freedom and, and forging their own modern post-Soviet identity. Uh, Professor Warner, this is a question that I've been meaning to ask from the beginning of our podcast. I, I better ask it before I forget. Aside from President Putin's sort of power politics and geopolitical interests and, 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 and ambitions, do the Russian people, and I appreciate we're talking about Ukraine, but I'm interested here. Do the Russian people feel that the historical ties to Ukraine are so formidable or compelling that this is warranted? All of this? I, it, it cuts both ways. You know, I think I've made the analogy, and, and I, frankly, I don't think it's far fetched. Um, you know, in the United States, obviously, where you know we have a certain kind of, uh, amount of polarization and and some tensions that you know, whatever of a of a racial, of a linguistic, of a of a political nature, but I don't think anyone thinks that, uh, for example, that the blue states are going to attack the red states, or that uh, California will suddenly become you know annexed or will become independent. We can no longer go there. Hey, we do talk about that here. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's quite similar um, in Russia and Ukraine. There, ha it's important to note that it, there was, although there was one, there was a border that was established, but there were no border checks. There were no border markers between Russia. It was only somewhat over like a hundred kilometers that even were marked as a border between Russia and Ukraine uh, as recently as 2014. So. There is, uh, you know, there's enormous numbers of people in Ukraine that might have uh, a Russian mother or, or a grandmother or a husband or wife or and huge numbers of Russians who might have spent their summers in Ukraine. So it's important to note that there has it has been experienced as kind of a single space. Mm. So on one level, 
the creation of political borders first in 1991, which is that they were political borders, but they were very, very easily um, traversed. I mean, in other words, one could go to Russia or Ukraine with, you know, you didn't need a visa, obviously, or there were, of course, all the train and rail and airlines were all there. So it was very, very easy to go back and forth. This is no longer the case. And so since 2014, there are now, uh, there's been very serious breaks in the communication and transportation links, which then spills over into commerce and trade. But there now are formal borders and formal border checkpoints that have arisen, whereas previously there were none. Um, and that is akin to, uh, for example, I, I now live in Pennsylvania, sort of having to go through a border checkpoint to go to New Jersey. Uh, one knows that New Jersey exists and that's a separate state and they have their own representatives and senators and the like, but you don't expect, you don't, I don't see New Jersey as a separate kind of a state structure where I am a foreigner. And I think it's, these are very, very um, sweeping changes that I think um, have come about very, very quickly. And I don't That's think- why you say it cuts both ways. Uh, Russians now think that about Ukraine. It's, it's now separate. It's not the same experience in, let's say, 2010, 2009. And Ukrainians probably feel the same uh, in, in a different format. But uh, a lot depends on which kind of a future would you like you know and of course in ukraine it's a they're in beginning to envision a different kind of a future that does not include a president who sees himself as a president for life who is willing to serve two terms anoint somebody else to serve two terms and then change the constitution so that he can return to power oh gee who are you talking about i can't think of anyone <laughs> well Putin's done that, and he probably wouldn't mind if someone similar to him and another uh, uh, sort of autocrat uh, set up an oligarchy in in Ukraine. He's he's he, that's why he sent troops to Kazakhstan to sort of defend that system over there. That's a client state. Let's take a break. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say he has a greater chance of maintaining his own political system and his own political status if in the surrounding countries, be it Kazakhstan, be it Ukraine, be it Belarus, if they have a similar kind of political structure where you have an autocratic yeah. person who rules, whose power is fairly unchecked by elections or any other means and supported by a cadre of oligarchs. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Warner as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news, and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Warner, what are some key points about Ukraine that we Americans don't understand? Well, I think it's important to, um, you know, we have the makings of a horrific 
uh, uh, armed combat about to erupt. Um, and it's important to note that I think for most Ukrainians and for most Russians, this remains uh, almost unimaginable. And yet they see around them the evidence that this is about to happen. Um, and they, I think I would like most Americans to know that on one level for Ukrainians, the unimaginable part, they took that shock in 2014 when you had Russian-backed uh, separatists uh, looking to destabilize Ukraine. So in other words, they don't see the coming war, they see an intensification of an ongoing war. I think it was very revealing. I'm sorry, uh, would you repeat that sentence again? An intensification of the war. If you remember from uh, President Biden's speech the other day, mm -hmm. he mentioned, uh, he, he discussed several options. Perhaps there will be an incursion I remember that was a fiasco. Yes, yes. The incursion that and that will beget a certain response from NATO and other um because you for the Ukrainians, there have been these so-called incursions. Yeah. And there was not a response internationally. When Crimea was annexed, that was an incursion, one could say. And this is what Put Mr. Putin is quite a master at these uh, at these incursions. He's not. He never actively declared war on Ukraine, but what he did was he backed separatists and sent in mercenaries. And so you have then armed combat. That's an, another incursion, but it leaves the West, including the United States and NATO, with um, the option of not responding. Um, would there be a massive uh, attempt to invade Ukraine? That would then, of course, court a different kind of response from from the West, and it would also court a different kind of response from Ukrainians. It's one thing to foment separatism in a very in a hybrid war in a designated region. It's another thing to try to invade and 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 hold and begin to actually govern a very large territory. Ukraine is approximately the size of France. Uh, that's would, that's a, an entirely different kind of proposition. Yeah. So I think, you know, the kind of tactic that Mr. Putin is likely to do are these in, incursions of sorts that are enormously destabilizing. And we should be very clear that produce dead bodies that lead to destruction of hospitals, schools, roads, and the like. I mean, they're enormously harmful, and they stymie any kind of political development of any kind of a democratic nature. Also large-scale investment. Let's say you're Shell or Exxon or whoever, there's a war, you'd, you'd be reluctant to go invest in dollars there. Yeah. Do Mr. Putin's tactics of... Uh, incursions sort of minor i'm just using that word very loosely here do they also have the effect of undermining ukrainians sense of national confidence i think faced with um the kind of governance that mr putin is proposing i do not think they feel uh disempowered if anything it creates, it, it, he, Mr. Putin in the last, since 2014 has done more to create a Ukrainian, a unified Ukrainian nation and has done more 
to advance the cause of Ukrainian nation building and to increase the use of Ukrainian language to, to accelerate the creation of, a, of an independent church and to marshal allegiance for all things Ukrainian. This is wonderful. So it's the, it's the, it's the opposite of his intended effect, right? Yes, I believe it is. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Ukraine, what would that be? I think it's really important to note that, that while there might have been uh, tensions and divisions between Ukraine and Russia, for most people, uh, they never thought it could ever be possible that there would be any kind of armed incursion or that that they would see the kind of withering of uh, the democratic advances they have made, the uh, advancement in civil liberties and the institutionalization of civil liberties. I think it's really important uh, to recognize just how fragile, not just democracy, but arguably even peace really can be. All it can take is a political leader who has outsized power and is able to marshal uh, violent forces, and you can destabilize quite a bit. If there are no tangible... Wait, are you talking about the U.S. or Ukraine now? I think it pertain- I think this is a lesson for us all. Yeah. In other words, I think we see in Ukraine the wholesale creation of differences where perhaps none had to have existed. We see the creation of hostility. We see the creation of animosity that has led to armed combat. Um, and because Ukraine is very much of an underdog in this uh, match, um, we have people, you know, men up until age 50 that are being called up to serve. I mean, they are willing to uh, defend their country and its path towards democracy. So we see here, I think, a validation of democracy and a validation of the kinds of civil liberties that are have a greater chance of thriving under a democratic form of governance. And we see the tremendous lengths that Ukrainians are willing and are trying to go to, to ensure that they can work towards having that kind of government. But we also see what a tremendous, tremendous struggle that is and how it is possible for outside forces to court even inside forces then, but in other words, to create differences and create hostilities. And it reminds me very much of, um, you know, Ernst Renan's point about democracy is a, and a nation is, a, you know, is a plebiscite of every day. We have to wake up every day and say, well, we, we want to be American and we want to have a, a democratic society or we uh, because this is exactly what Ukrainians are forced to do these days. They wake up to have day. a daily referendum. Right. We still want to be Ukrainians. We still want to have a democratic state. You know, my earlier comment that uh, about U.S., um, are you talking about U.S.? America is not Ukraine, but uh, in a frightening fashion, some of the things that you were sharing, the division and, and the strong person in power, that some of those destabilizing forces uh, have gained some ground and currency in the U.S., and that's unfortunate. Yeah, maybe the only other thing I would say is that, you know, on one level, um, 
if nothing else, I think uh, the coronavirus has shown us that we're all interconnected. And I think this uh, conflict in Russia and Ukraine also shows the extent to which um, many different peoples, many different states, many different interests are also interconnected. And we rise together and we fall together. Yeah, that's for sure. Professor Warner, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News.